I've commented before on how sometimes it's hard to find the best place to stop and begin a, a sentence when you're doing, I mean a sermon, when you're doing the uh, walking through a book. Last time, I stopped at the end of chapter 4 on purpose because even though I knew that the first sentence in chapter 5 basically should have been in chapter 4. And it's best seen if we uh, understand it that way. So understand that when we start. Let's, uh, we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 15 tonight. I try not to make it too long. Uh, try not to bore you too much. This is, this is very rich, very good. Uh, we've had a lot of groundwork laid this morning for this. I hope we can see that. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, God, you know my need, you know our need as a church and as a people. You've very wisely, very perfectly laid out both our shortcomings and our problems and your remedies in your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, to see these with discernment, to see your will and uh, our responsibility in this. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you took the initiative. Help us, Heavenly Father. Help my voice and my mouth and my mind. Help me, God, to understand. And I pray, God, that you'll, your Holy Spirit will do its work here tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, in our call and in our sermon, we were shown in the psalm Christ our hope and our encouragement, our banner. In our main message, we were shown Samuel, a young boy serving in the temple, wearing a linen ephod pointing to the promise of God's faithfulness. God has not and will not change his, forget his people. He will provide redemption. Fast forward. To that hope realized, literally, visible, a flesh and blood man, bleeding and nailed to the cross, he could come down, but he won't. He stays till all of redemption is paid for. There, then, he voluntarily relinquishes his life. They didn't take his life. He gave it. He laid it down. He gave it up. He surrenders his spirit to leave his body. The price is paid. He said himself, it is finished. The temple curtain is torn and access is granted to the Holy of Holies for common people no longer required to be a priest. All believers are a priest. Now, jump forward a few more years. His church 
his bride is young and growing and believers are being brought in even in persecution seems like the persecution fuels it but just like we heard this morning the evil one has his plan too he's at work he infiltrates the church and he's telling people no Christ's blood was not enough the atonement was almost done you need more You need to prove yourself worthy of this salvation. A salvation you didn't pay for, you didn't participate in, that can't be worth much. Do something. That's what the devil says. Do something. So, men go to work. And that brings us to where we are in chapter 5 of Galatians. Paul, having started these churches, he's battling false teachers who tell the young believers they need to be proselytized. He uses all kinds of pleading words. He says, I feel like you're my children. I feel like I'm your father. He says, I feel like all the work I've done has been like labor in childbirth. And now you're throwing it all away. He has so many arguments. He says, you were slaves. Do you want to be slaves again? And he keeps on using that language. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, he continues this theme. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery... It's very interesting to me how he writes this letter. Uh, as if he was in a conversation, as if, as if he was talking. He says, he says to him in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed. From Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Remember, in the very first installment, I said that we have to uh, assume things from what Paul says. We have to figure out the questions by the answers that Paul gives. This is one of them. He says, but if I still preach circumcision, and we see that nowhere in this epistle Paul has ever claimed that, nowhere in any of his epistles he ever claims that. We can only learn from this that the Judaizers were telling the people in Galatia, the young believers, they were telling them that, hey, Paul agrees with us. Paul would, Paul would tell you the same thing. 
That's one of their lies. He says, if that was true, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross, which Paul actually bore gladly, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Freedom is mentioned many times in this epistle. Even in other, other epistles Paul uh, put out. Uh, this is best understood if we link it all back to, like I said, the, what he was telling him in chapter 4. Judaism, he was picturing as slavery. He says, you have been set free from this. That old belief system pointed to the true, the New Testament, the new uh, covenant. Remember the, the analogy, the uh, allegory of Hagar and Ishmael. They were portrayed as slaves. That they came out of Egypt, literally associated with slave, slavery, all in the Bible. Believers are put forth as, as sons, remember in chapter 4. But with full adopted sons, but with full familial rights. He said there are some advantage to being an adopted son. For instance, one is you can never be abandoned. You can never be put away. Your, son, your father... Uh, could exercise a, a Greek law in that time, a Roman law, I'm sorry, and he could go so far as to exercise capital punishment on a son, a member of the family, not for an adopted son. He said, you have that advantage. And in verse 30 of chapter 4, he concluded with, what did he say? But he was picturing, he was saying, the old way is passing away. All things are become new. He's saying that covenant, which was not meant to save anyway, it was meant to point to the true covenant. He said that's over. He said cast out the slave woman, which would be ritual, and her son works. Cast them out. That's over. That's done with. That's, we don't have to, that don't have meaning anymore. You don't, you don't look at the shadow when you can have the substance of a shadow. This makes a shadow. This is what's real. That's not real. Because in reality, salvation had never been attainable by ritual or law-keeping. Old Testament ceremonies and feasts and rituals only pictured God's holiness. Then they designated Israel as the nation to bring forth the real Savior, Jesus. I hope you don't get tired of hearing that because it's absolutely the bedrock of all these, all these comparisons that Paul makes. In the analogy in chapter 4, Sarah and Isaac played opposite Hagar and Ishmael. They portrayed the part of righteousness that was imputed and salvation by grace. He continues on. He makes a declaration, you've been set free. What are you going to do now that you're free? Retreat? No. Stand firm. Paul often would use 
military, even sports analogies in his references, in his, in his epistles. Stand firm means do not retreat and do not fall back. Stay where you are. Don't take a lesser view. Don't fall back into something that's less than what you have. Don't give up the ground you've already gained. He says he uses the word yoke. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Jewish people would uh, recognize this, even though he was talking to Galatians, but he was throwing in things, phrases and words and doctrines every now and then to jab at these people who were the Judaizers. He knew they would hear this, this letter. He said the yoke that the Judaizers are so proud of, you call the fact that you're a Jew a yoke that you bear gladly? He said... He said it was, they, they thought it was a, a badge of honor. He said, don't put that back on. Remember Jesus' description of his kingdom in Matthew? Who was Jesus talking to in Matthew? Primarily Jews. What did he say? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew used, the, I mean, Jesus used the same terminology. Don't go back. Don't yield your ground. In verses 2 through 4, he uses more. Uh, I'm, I'm going through quickly, trying to get to some uh, specific doctrines I want to emphasize later. I'm going to try to cover just the uh, summary here. He said, if you accept circumcision. Now, this does not mean a, a man who is circumcised has done something wrong. No, that's, that's a physical, medical procedure. That's not it. The thing is, he says, if you associate circumcision with all the laws and all the ceremonies, with everything that had to do with the Old Testament as salvific, he said, if you think there's something in that that saves you about being a Jew, he says, no, that's, that's, that's entirely wrong. If you accept this way as salvific, he says, Jesus will have no advantage. One cancels out the other. I've said that many, many times. You can be circumcised. You can be a Jew and try to keep the law. You'll never be saved. You can have Jesus submit to him and his yoke and accept him as Lord, yield to him, admit you're a sinner, and the fact that you can't keep the law, that's your only hope. But that cancels out law and circumcision. Sometimes in these chapters, these passages, you can take one from the previous one and pretty much lay it over the, another passage of Scripture right there. And it's, it's kind of like a template. Paul uses these uh, ways of reasoning. He'll say, well, if this is true, then this can't be true. And this is kind of like what we're seeing right here in chapter 2. He said, if anyone could have righteousness by the law, Christ died in vain. He's repeating his same thing over and over again, hoping to make them think logically. He says, if you, if you do that, if you accept the law, if you want to stick with the law, if you want to stick with Old Testament ways, you are obligated. Remember what I said last time? It's kind of like a, a uh, timeshare contract that you, you can't get away from, that you want out from under. You can't, he said, you're obligated. If you... Decide you want to try to keep the law, you got to keep it all. 
It's a one-sided contract, a no-win. The law does pictures God, God's perfection and His holiness, but it can't be dismantled, it can't be whittled on, it can't be taken apart to fit people's weaknesses and sin. It's big. To break the law in one point is to break it all. We know that because we see that in James chapter 2, verse 10. Paul is masterful with the, the way he uses his words. Often I try to delicately talk about circumcision. Watch this. Paul says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. Circumcision depicts, all right, picture circumcision. And my mind goes to, uh, back to the Old Testament, Moses and Zipporah. That Zipporah had to do it for Moses. Sever, fall away. <laughs> Paul knew this story. Circumcision depicts cutting away sin and separating something unclean or unnecessary. The Judaizers and Galatians had it backwards. He said, you're not cutting away something good. You're cutting away something bad. You're severing yourself from Christ. To return to the law, to the law keeping, was separating oneself from Christ and His salvation, their only real hope. He says, you have fallen away from grace. You have lowered your standing. You have rejected something good in order to have something bad. What kind of a trade is that? Paul is begging them, begging them. Let's continue on. He says four. He's making an argument here. For through the Spirit, by faith, Paul continues to always circumcision is physical and literal out in the open the relationship he's talking about is spiritual he says you you can have something so much better it's by the through the spirit by faith again paul hammers the difference between flesh and works and genealogy and genealogy, and what God does inside a person. A spiritual work, that's the result of faith. He says, even us believers, we have, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's pointing out the final, complete salvation. For some people, For instance, me. When I say somebody's converted, or I talk about somebody being regenerated, I say they got saved. That's, that's common around here. We say, that person got saved. Well, that don't go well with some people because they know that final salvation is not complete. The history's not over yet. We're not in glory yet. You're not actually saved. You can't put it in the past. He's saying it, there will be a time. Final Complete salvation. 
otherwise called glorification. He says, we're waiting our final salvation, our final glorification. We wait for it by faith. In heaven, we will see the object of our faith. Paul has preached to these Galatians. They didn't, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't see Jesus. They may have heard about Jesus through the grapevine, through uh, other preachers, through other missionaries. They didn't know Jesus. Paul actually knew Jesus in, in, by his own sight and the Holy Spirit living within him. He said this hope of righteousness, this hope of glorification. He says, no, we don't, any of us have it yet, but we're waiting for it in faith. The indwelling Holy Spirit produces real hope since it is based on Christ's work not a man's work, not a ceremony, not a ritual, not a sacrifice. His own sacrifice. He says this does not count for anything. Paul had to admit that the act of circumcision in itself wasn't bad. What did he say about it? Himself. He said, I'm a Jew, circumcised the eighth day. He says that's the act, the procedure... That in itself is not bad. When you put your trust in it, that's bad. He says you can't do that. In Christ, Paul, he had revealed real righteousness, full justification by this faith that he had within him, not through circumcision. Paul's past, remember the testimony he gave of his past, how Awful a person he was, how he put people in jail and murdered people. He, he uh, accosted and accused and uh, persecuted Christians. That was not characterized by love. It was characterized by what men work up in themselves. Uh, emotionalism, pride. Uh, they're, they're driven to succeed he called it his religious zeal. His religious zeal and hunger for power drove him to persecution and murder of Christians. He said, my circumcision didn't help me a bit. It did not put submission in my heart. It did not put love in my heart. I didn't care about people because I was circumcised. He says, I know what I'm talking about. That's where I came from. When Jesus called him and the Holy Spirit indwelled him, he was convicted and shamed by the contrast in what he thought was good and what Jesus showed him to be really good. Paul says, if you put your hope in circumcision or in the law, if the Old, Old Testament ways, he said, that don't really count for anything. There's no way righteousness comes out of that. In verses 7 through 10, we'll take another block. Remember what I said about laying one passage over another passage and it says the same thing? This is similar to what we see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul's exasperated and amazed and he asked the Galatians to think logically. He knows their original faith. He knows he preached the gospel correctly. 
What does he say? He says, you were running well. He says, I know your foundation. I know what you acted like when you got saved. I know what this church was like. Churches were like, we started off on the right foot. I know that. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He wants them to see their error. He wants them to see, think about what changed if, we, if, we, if we're trying to make any kind of repair or figure out something happened to one of our children. We go through the, the, the day, the series of events, and we say, well, this happened, this happened, I know this happened. What changed? What, what's different in this sequence that we can analyze this? Paul's doing the same thing. He's saying, your, con- your conversion's real. Your conversion was because of the Holy Spirit. Your conversion was because the gospel was preached to you. What has changed? He wants them to see their error. Notice what he calls it, what he calls this error. In verse 8, he says, this persuasion. If you had to be persuaded from something good, that that puts a whole negative light on what you're doing now. This persuasion, it hints of deception. Persuasion and deception, not preaching. We can't emphasize this enough. And we've seen this in our area, in our culture, in our lifetimes. People and churches and groups will do anything parties, singings, events, outreach, they call it, anything to keep from preaching the gospel, to keep from preaching straight truth, repentance, and faith. The only thing that will work, they reject. He says this persuasion, whatever you're following, does not agree with the preaching that happened when I was there. Let's look on. This is one of the uh, points I want to emphasize later. He says, him who calls you. These few words. Him who calls you. Paul reminds them that God himself was the originator of their salvation. Whoever, if it's a single person, if it's a group, was convincing them otherwise is dangerous and satanic. Leaven, this is another thing that Jesus, this same phrase in verse 9, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What is leaven? What does leaven picture in the Bible? In the, in the Passover time, they said you can't have leavened bread. As a matter of fact, when you leave this place, you leave that leaven back there. It represents sin or error. A little goes a long way. Sin does not dissipate. It does not pass away. You leave it alone, it'll still be bad when you go back. In fact, it propagates. All it needs, like leaven, like yeast, is a willing or ignorant host, which is what the Galatians were. He says, you can can foster this error and it'll just keep going. It'll get bigger and worse and worse. You know I like to shoot. We all, we're always talking about this, how we like to shoot. And how the fact that 
if you've got a short shooting range, you've got 50 yards, and you shoot, and you can do your group, you've got three or five shots here. It's a, an inch. What's it going to be at, a, at 100 yards? It's going to be two inches. It gets bigger as it goes out. He said this leaven won't stop. It goes a long way. Sin does the same thing. This is no accident. The leaven here, the way he used it, is exactly what Matt, Jesus used in Matthew. Again, remember what he said? Matthew 16, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Long before Paul's time. The same, same example, Paul knew it. It's actually the same doctrine. It's the same corruption that was, that was present in Jesus' time. He used the same example to them Jews back to, the, to his disciples warning about the Sadducees and Pharisees. He called it leaven. A little goes a long way. In verse 10, what does he say these people are doing? Are they beating you? But earlier he called it persuading. He says they're troubling. This is also used, I think, in chapter 1. Uh, it's a picture of boiling water or like a, a body of water that, that would be clear, but you keep stirring it up. You keep messing with Even a mud puddle, you know, it'll get clear after a while. It settles. You keep stirring it up. It's called broiling. I mean, roiling, I'm sorry. That, that's, the, that's the word, that's the picture this word is intended to portray. It's troubling. Paul won't soften his rebuke. There is no upside to this deal. There's no, no, no way to, to pitch it in a positive light. He doesn't call it a mistake. He doesn't call it an error. This word means to stir up and to keep something unsettled. He said these people, if you keep on with this doctrine, you cannot advance. You can't grow because you're constantly tending to this problem. You can't go on. He says, whoever is troubling you, I want him to bear this penalty. What was the penalty? Remember that we've seen in chapter 1? He said it two times. He says, if somebody brings you another gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be cut off. It's that serious. It's that bad. You're shooting that group? You want them all to go in the same hole. Who can do that? In the, in the same hole. You get off a little bit, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Uh, he said, you, you cannot compromise. You cannot go astray on this fact. Salvation is not by works. It's by grace. It's by the work that Jesus done. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, if I still preach circumcision... Now, I've already alluded to this. From Paul's defense and testimony in chapters 1 and 2, we know that the false teachers tried to discredit Paul, and apparently they also convinced the Galatians that Paul would agree with them or approve of their false teaching. Paul says, no, no, never did you hear me say anything like that. In fact, he's happy when he gives his testimony, when he gives his account of his, uh, his past, he's happy that he traded Judaism for the yoke of Jesus. He does have a righteous pride. 
that his ministry is contrasted with false teaching. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He, gives, he says, it's, it's like they push him into it. He says, if you're going to make me, make me say this, you want to do this, we'll do this. And he tells all these things about his vision, about his uh, qualifications. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy, and I, I don't mind it. He's happy that, he's, that Jesus came to him. He's thankful to be considered worthy of the offense of the cross. Continue on. Chapter, I mean, verse 12. Similar to the language you used before. He says, you've been severed. And he wishes this on these, these false teachers. And this sentence don't really fit all that good. It's like an outburst. He says, I wish they'd just do the whole deal. He says, I wish they would emasculate themselves, castrate themselves. He says, I wish they'd just fix this thing for good. He has no kind words for anybody that hinders the gospel. What does Paul know from the Old Testament about a person who is emasculate. It would disqualify them from temple worship. They would not be allowed back in. It would also ensure that they would have no children to carry on their heresy. Paul does not. He's mad. Paul just wants it to stop, whatever it takes. Uh, Jesus had similar thoughts on the same subject in Luke chapter 17. What did he say about people who would lead one of these little children astray? Tie a millstone around his neck. Throw him in the sea. Yes, the gospel is that precious and that vital. In verses 13 through 15. He uses the word called. This is another uh, important phrase. Called means heralded. Hey, come here. Stop what you're doing. You're called. You're beckoned. He says you are called to freedom. The work is done. Nothing any man can do is able to add to or assist or complete our salvation. New Covenant believers are in no way required to keep Old Testament ceremonies. He says, only do not use that freedom. Don't take advantage of it. Don't say, I'm free to do anything. Don't say, I'm free to mistreat my brother. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We know historically... That the Jews, except for a small group, had misapplied all of God's mercy and favor and blessing. They selfishly imagined that they were better than others. They had used their freedom, their gifts, God's mercy, as an opportunity for the flesh. They thought they were better than others. They turned God's favor into religion, ugly religion, uh, 
religion for the sake of religion, religion for the sake of influence and money. God intended circumcision to be a sign of separation and humility. The Jews reversed it and considered themselves the ones to be honored and revered. Let's go on. Don't use this freedom as an opportunity to exercise what you think is your rights, the flesh, but through love. It is as if Paul is telling the Galatians, you really want to do some kind of works? You really want to participate in this? You really, really can't let it alone? If you, if you want to do something, do this. Love your neighbor. Love your brother. If you're so determined to do something, love one another. Genuine love is not selfish or ambitious. It's, it's the antitype of all this thing he's been talking about. Later, Paul gave more details to the, to the Romans. In Romans chapter 13, let's just look at that. Romans 13 verses 8 through 14. Sometimes I feel a little funny using uh, Paul's other letters as support passages and commentary on the one we're talking about. But there's no, it's all good and there's no way around it, really. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the man who loves another has fulfilled the law. Wow, look at that. They wanted to fulfill the law. Boom. Done. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He said, Paul is saying, really, you want to do some kind of activity. Do this. It's almost as if he has to treat them like children. You have to give them some kind of busy work. You have to reason with them. Do this. Apparently, Paul hoped the Judaizers would recognize Leviticus 19. What does it say? It says, You shall not hate your brother in your hearts, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Wow. What, what a breakthrough. What great good news this whole new concept come up with. No. Thousands of years ago, Paul, I mean, God had already stated it. This is, this is the thing right here. Love your neighbor. And he concludes what we're looking at here. Verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. Now, why would you think this? We're talking about works of the flesh. How does this work? Uh, think about this, men. We're very often very competitive. You know, we like to outdo one another. Works righteousness can only naturally 
lead to conceitedness and selfish competition. Just like the leaven in verse 9, these things increase. You know, that's the way it is with competition. You always want to one-up on another guy. They, they feed on one another till nothing is left. He says you might, you'll, you'll devour one another. Sin and corruption will not eventually mature into righteousness. Apart from an outside positive influence, what is that? Holy Spirit, putting the gospel in your heart. Apart from that, you won't get better. You'll only get worse. Now I'm going to look at five of these phrases to try to bring out some doctrines. In verses 1, the beginning of first part of verse 1. The heading of this one is, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul said, Christ has set us free. Paul, in Galatians, focused on their freedom from religion, like sacrifices and ceremonies as a means of salvation. We religiously practice church attendance, don't we? We're here every Lord's Day. Uh, Religion in itself, just like circumcision, is not bad. Empty religion is bad. All of this fully applies to us today. But, as we are sanctified and mature, the Holy Spirit grows us to learn and obey God's law. You don't put the law first. The expression and description of His holy attributes, that's the law. In a local church setting particularly... The Holy Spirit uses the word and sanctified means of grace. And we realize genuine freedom. Even in service to God and to one another. Serving God. I had a pastor friend. He used to say this all the time. I was too young to understand it. He said, serving God means serving people. Scripture is clear. God takes the initiative He comes and rescues sinners who are dead spiritually. Let's see this in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God took the initiative. Christ set us free. He done it all, just like we just saw right here in Ephesians. We are free, but only so far as we understand freedom in Christ. That, that phrase was repeated in that, in that passage we just read, read, in Christ. Only so far as we understand our freedom in Christ and because of Christ. We don't use it for ourselves. Number two, in verse 16 we see the, I'm sorry, not 16. Uh, we see the phrase, Stand firm. It's still in, chapter, in uh, verse 1. We read in Hebrews chapter 10. But we are not of those who shrink back. We are to stand firm. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and, and preserve their souls. Fast forward to our time. 21st century Christians, we have more information at our disposal than any, any previous time. We're more educated and more civilized. We have more versions of Scripture, translations. We have more copies of Scripture. It don't help. We all can think of somebody who used to be active in church or used to, be, used to act like a Christian. We all know somebody that, that has fallen away. They did not remain faithful. But this is not so of Christ, our example. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. This is a paraphrase. That he was faithful and steadfast and reconciled hostile sinners to the Father in his own flesh and death to present us holy and blameless before God. He didn't, he didn't back up. He didn't retreat. He stand firm. He stood firm. For all of our benefits, we have many distractions. Most of them right between our ears. We have no excuse, though, because we see in Ephesians chapter 6 how to put on the armor of faith, all this equipment, if we use the tools and means that God has given us, we will stand. He told the Ephesians to stand. Number three, and I thought this, this one might have uh, stood out to me first. This doctrine. He says, this error, this thing that you're leaning towards, this thing that you're considering, this is not from him who calls you. The heading for this one is, The Sheep Hear the Shepherd. Paul stood on the authority of Jesus when he warned the Galatians. God himself had called Gentile sinners. That's the Galatians. That's us. We would not be considered Jews. We, don't have, we couldn't even say Abraham was our father like they could. We would, we're, we're dirty Gentiles to Paul. He called Gentile sinners out of idolatry and into his kingdom. This is God's kingdom we're talking about. He, he invited us in. He drew us in. 
the Galatians had begun well and were growing, but didn't recognize that the ones leading them into error, into Judaism, they really had no authority. Remember the word uh, that he used? He said this persuasion, this disturbing they're doing to you. They didn't have the authority to do that. They, they tricked them. They were gullible. The doctrine here is that Jesus and his gospel will not change. In James chapter 1, uh, it says that God has no variation nor shadow of turning. For him to change would mean either he had been wrong and he's correcting himself or, like it is now, we know he's perfect and right and holy. He would be putting himself into error. He can't change. He's immutable. He says this error, this thing that they're trying to get you to do, it didn't come from God. God called you. Peter addressed a similar issue in 1 Peter 2. He said, his admonition was, he said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now it sounds like he's talking about Jews, don't it? He's not talking about Jews. He's talking Gentiles. You've been made into all these things. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, called you, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's in 1 Peter 2, chapter, I mean, verses 9 and 10. Our calling is from God Himself. Paul said, the thing you're doing, the thing you're thinking about, this error, you didn't get it from God. We are called by the wisdom and choice of God Himself. No one can add to His authority. Number four. Deadly errors come in small packages. Remember the picture of the group. The farther, the farther you get away... A small error here means a large error way out yonder. Maybe circumcision seemed like a small detail to the Galatians. I imagine there was a lot of people, especially Jews, uh, when they reasoned it in their minds, they looked at the Old Testament Scripture and thought, you know, there was a Messiah promised. We'll, we'll, just, we'll keep doing our sacrifices. We'll keep doing our rituals. We'll just... We'll, Pull Jesus in with us. It, it was probably common. It's not a small detail. It's this road and this road. This road is supposed to support this road. The law and the prophets, they point to this road. They're, they're not going to meet. They're not going to cross. It is a big deal. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Any wiggle room on this one detail... Cancels the gospel. It kills it. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 10 and look at this. What does it say? Verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus alone procured and produced our atonement. For the Galatians, a little leaven could not be tolerated. Consider the gospel that we just saw in Hebrews. A single man accomplished and completed all of the redemption required in God's perfect gospel at a specific time, a specific and precise time, in a particularly prescribed manner. He controlled all the events. Remember what we said about him laying down his life? He controlled every event. Cody brought this up yesterday morning. He controlled all these events for his for redemption to be perfect for us. Redemption that lasts for eternity in the presence of a holy God absolutely has to be perfect. We can't come up with it. If we mess with it, we'll mess it up. The yeast analogy is no accident. Just like the example of Hagar and Sarah. Remember what he said? Are any of y'all, you've probably heard of a millimeter, right? A unit of measurement, it's tiny. We were just sitting out here talking about 556. Five, That's five millimeters. It's tiny, five of them. Have you heard of a micrometer? There are a thousand micrometers in a millimeter. The average size of a grain of yeast is three or four micrometers. A little leaven goes a long way. All, all the details of redemption are vital. We cannot compromise on this. Number five, this is the last one. It comes from verse 13. But it says, serve one another. And this title is, We Can't Build Our Own Kingdom and Love Others at the Same Time. He admonished the Galatians to love one another. This is exactly the opposite of what the Judaizers were saying. What is God's plan in the gospel? What is the, the end goal? It is our redemption. Redemption. The whole story of history, the whole story of the Bible, the whole gospel. Every time you cannot, you can't cut it anywhere and it not bleed redemption. Now, people who don't know God or understand His nature see Him as narcissistic and selfish because all of His purposes work for His own glory. We've heard that before. Critics say, what kind of God is that that's so jealous for himself and, and loves himself? But that's human reason, ain't it? That's just the way our, our defiled little minds work. It's also why we read in Isaiah 55, 8, my ways are not your ways. 
God never claimed to be like a man. As a matter of fact, that would, that would be the opposite. You see, God is always good. He doesn't have to try to be good. It's His nature. Men, on the other hand, do have to work at it. They're even commanded to do it. That's the point of this last admonition here. Paul's instruction to the Galatians to serve one another through love is a means to counteract the false teaching of the Judaizers. Paul was pointing out that the Judaizers were applying the law backwards. I've said this a couple times during this time tonight. The law will not bring about righteousness. Rather, righteous love does satisfy the law. We see this and we're led, we're led to this doctrine when we read John 3.16 and 1 John 4.21. They lead us to see these things. Neither Paul nor Jesus had a new word on love. I said this a while ago about Leviticus. Rather, they both reached all the way back hundreds of years to Leviticus where God had already said, He'd already give us the gospel. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, most of you don't know that I have a Ph.D. It don't shut. Uh, it, it works great because it's a great design. It's got long wooden handles, post hole digger, and it's got sharp metal hands on the bottom made out of strong materials and a pivot point just right, not, not all the way at the bottom, not at the top, not in the middle. This pivot point in the right place for maximum dig, grab, and dump. PhD, post hole digger works good. It's a great ground wrench. When you want to work on the ground, it's good. Show it to a kid, show it to this kid, you'll have yourself a hole in a few minutes. It's easy. But for it to work right, you have to use it right. Imagine this wonderful invention upside down. You've got cold, sharp, dirty blades in your, in your hands and you've got blunt, big old wooden nubs down there smearing the dirt like great big chopsticks. It's painful, it's pointless, and it's nasty. It's not going to work. That's what the Judaizers had done to the gospel. They thought that their Jewishness made them special. And I had to put quotes around Jewishness. I don't know if that's a real word. That since they were so godly and unique that God couldn't help but recognize their greatness and choose to bring about His kingdom through them. They never once considered the fact that there were no Jews, there were no tribes, there was nothing before God thought it up and started with a single man. He gave them His law. True. Judaism, with all its types and all its pictures and all its pointers to look at here comes Jesus. Here comes, here comes God's kingdom. But man has no goodness in him. God's perfect law couldn't make them right, even though God gave the law 
to the Jews. It couldn't make them right. It couldn't make them righteous because they couldn't keep it perfectly because God's perfect and holy. But because they could claim Abraham as their ancestor and since the law perpetuated their religion, remember, remember I said religion in a bad way, they felt good about it and they felt entitled. God's law is good, but not like they were using it. Remember the post hole diggers. It is good, but not like they were using it. The law only shows us where we are wrong. It shows us our sin. It makes us see the contrast between us and God. In the man Christ Jesus, God modeled how the law can be used in self-sacrificing humility and obedience. Jesus became a man. He fulfilled all the prophecies and types, the, the law and the ceremonies required. And he even loved dirty, sinful rebels, Gentile dogs. That's us. Jesus loved perfectly in word, deed, thought, and even in all the points of the law. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 10. We'll look at Jesus as our example here. Again, Paul, writing this epistle, says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our example. This is, this is love on legs. Love fulfilled the law because the law does not produce love. Only in Jesus do we see perfect love and perfect obedience to the law. Let's pray.